0: Peace and peace to you, friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks, and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge Season 1, Episode 67, and today is the last Sunday of May, May 29th of 2022. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Appreciate you. I appreciate you listening. I've got listeners from six different countries. I am stunned. Thank you all so much for listening. I know last week I went through uh, the countries, but let me go through them again because thank you all. I I appreciate you. Uh, We've got uh, listeners from Saudi Arabia, France, Australia, Germany, Nigeria, and of course the United States. So thank you so much for listening. And if you are new to this channel, I appreciate you uh, checking us out. Um, And you may be wondering, though, what is this? Um, what is the encyclopedia challenge? Do I have to read encyclopedias? I don't even own encyclopedias. I use Wikipedia or just Google everything. So that's no big deal. You don't have to own encyclopedias. Uh, You can still Google everything. (laughs) I still Google stuff. Um, But I read the encyclopedia to you because I know our lives are super, super busy. And, uh, so I've decided to read the encyclopedia to you. We read from two different encyclopedias, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Yes, that's right. If you are new here, I did, I did say 1909, um, but also from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So we read from those two encyclopedias. The main source right now is the 1909 encyclopedia, and we are almost done with it. Well, with book one of the A's. There are more A's, of course. um, But we're almost done with book one of the A's. And next week, we'll end book one of the A's for the new Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. And possibly, the Encyclopedia Americana. Uh, So, yay! This is very exciting. I, I almost combined everything and turned it into 40 entries today. But I decided not to do that. Uh, It just got to be too much. So I decided to stick with the original plan of ending uh, book one of the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 next week with episode 68. So I'm really excited that we're almost done. So thank you again for for joining me. So let's go ahead and get started. Now, if you have been with me all this time. Uh, You know that we started a monthly quote a few months ago. So today ends our May monthly quote. And our May monthly quote is by George Santillana, who is a Spanish philosopher, poet, and writer. um, But he always considered himself an American. His real name was Jorge Augustin Nicolas Ruiz de Santillana y Boras. uh, But he liked George Santillana. And his quote, I really, really like, and I, and I hate that, that uh, today ends it, but we have so many more amazing quotes that we just pick from millions and millions, probably billions. But uh, his quote is, A man may not always eat and drink what is good for him, but it is better for him and less ignominious to die of the gout freely than to have a censor officially appointed over his diet who, after all, could not render him immortal. So let's read that one more time. A man may not always eat and drink what is good for him, but it is better for him and less ignominious to die of the gout freely than to have a censor officially appointed over his diet, who, after all, could not render him immortal. And we'll read that one more time uh, before we go. But I know that you are here for the meat of this podcast, and the meat is the encyclopedia. So last week we ended with Amherst, comma, Jeffrey, or Baron Amherst, or Jeffrey Amherst. So today we are going to begin with Amherst, comma, William Pitt, Earl of. And then we have Amherst Berg, Amherst College, Amiable, amiant or Ammienthus. And if you want to know how to spell any of these or if you missed any of the previous podcasts. All you have to do, it's no big deal, just go to TheOakTreeJourneys.com. The uh, website is in the description below, so if you're driving, don't worry about writing it down, just remember to go to the to the podcast description and TheOakTreeJourneys.com, the link is there. So, uh, and this is, if you want to know how this week's are spelled, it's Season 1, Episode 67, and you can go through and see some of these words... Um, If you're my regular listeners, you know that some of these words are spelled completely different than they are pronounced. And sometimes I mispronounce them because they are spelled completely different. But uh, for these five words, the first five words for entries, we are going to be strictly in the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. So number one is Amherst, William Pitt, Earl of, or Earl of Amherst. William Pitt Amherst. And he lived from 1773 to 1857, March 13th, I'm assuming is when he died. It's not very clear sometimes in the 1909. He was the nephew of Baron Geoffrey Amherst. So if you remember, we talked about Baron Amherst last week. In fact, we ended with him last week. His embassy to China in 1816 failed because of his manly refusal to kneel before the emperor in the degrading Kitau. Earl Amherst was governor general of India from 1823 to 1828. The first Burmese war, with its triumph, made his administration notable. So even though he did have a failure, he still had a notable administration. And number two, Amherstburg. that's the town in the province of Ontario, Canada, in the River Detroit, which empties Lake St. Clair into Lake Erie. It is one of the oldest settlements in Upper Canada, being named from Lord Amherst, who, by the capture of Montreal in 1760, completed what General Wolfe had begun at Quebec in 1759. It occupies the southwest extremity of the province, the turning point of climate and character to the basin of the St. Lawrence, the spot where its waters having gained... Southing from the 50th to the 42nd parallel, suddenly assume a direction which carries them back to their original latitude above the island of Anticosti. Amherstburg, large business, is done here in timber. In the days of slavery in the United States, Amherstburg being a frontier town was a place of refuge for fugitive slaves. Well, that's good. Population in 1901 was 2,222. So 2222. <laughs> And uh, number three, Amherst College. In Amherst, Massachusetts, founded in eighteen twenty one, the part in part through the exertions of Noah Webster, LLD, then a resident of Amherst, Zephaniah Swift Moore DD, was called from the presidency of Williams College to the same office in this in this institution, which opened eighteen twenty one september nineteenth, with two teachers and forty seven students. Wow, just two teachers and less than fifty students. The following year, a second edifice was built, the two still standing as North and South College. Soon afterward, a large chapel chapel oh man. A large chapel was erected between the two, all fronting a magnificent westward view of the Connecticut River Valley from Mount Holyoke on the south to Mount Tom on the north. The successive presidencies have been as follows. Heeman Humphrey, DD, or He Man, He Man Humphrey, DD, from 1823 to 1845, Edward Hitchcock, DD LLD, 1845 to 1854, William A. Stearns, DD LLD, 1854 to 1876, Julius H. Seeley, DD LLD, 1876 to 1890, and Merrill E. Gates, PhD LLD eighteen ninety to eighteen ninety nine, George Harris DD LLD since nineteen hundred. Noted professors have been Ebenezer S. Snell LLD from eighteen twenty nine to eighteen seventy six, Jacob Abbott DD, Nathan W. Fisk, father of Helen Hunt and that's not Helen Hunt the actress. <laughs> this is the remember this is nineteen oh nine. Edwards A. Park, D.D. L.L.D., Henry B. Smith, D.D. L.L.D., Charles U. Shepard, M.D. L.L.D., Edward Tuckerman, L.L.D., and William S. Tyler, D.D. L.L.D., the latter's service dating from 1836. The whole number of alumni to 1903 was 4,341. The catalog of 1902 to 1903 enrolled 36 professors, so they went, they went from two professors now to 36 professors, seven instructors, and 404 students. So they started with less than 50 and now they have 404 in the 1902 to 1903. The classes excluding graduate students, averaging 82 each. The undergraduate courses of four years with much liberty of optional studies after the first year may have in view the degree of Bachelor of Arts, or of science, the degree of PhD is conferred on a two years postgraduate course in science or literature, and special students not in the degree courses may receive certificates. The work in science has been much strengthened by new chemical and physical laboratories and equipment at a cost of $100,000. Other facilities of the institution include the Mather Art Collection of Antique and Modern Castes, an observatory with a seven and a quarter yeah, quarter-inch telescope, the Woods Geological Cabinet, including the Rich Shepherd Collection of Meteorites and President Hitchcock's suits of specimens from the Survey of Several New England States, the Appleton Cabinet Building with 1,400 ichnological slabs, not sure if I said that right, the Audubon Collection of Birds, ooh, that's cool, the Large Adams Collection of Shells, etc. The Pratt Gymnasium and the Pratt Athletic Field of 13 acres, a beautiful Gothic Church of Stone, the gift of a son of President Stearns, crowns the east brow of the College Hill. Ooh, that sounds nice. The Henry T. Morgan Library of Stone contains 60,000 volumes, which seems like nothing now, and its porch is adorned with sculptured slabs from the Palace of Sardanopoulos, obtained by the missionary Henry Lobdell. That's neat. The college was a pioneer in American geology, as represented by President Edward Hitchcock, father of the geologist Charles H. Hitchcock, and was also first in developing systematic physical culture under the lead of another son, Edward Hitchcock, M.D. This institution has taken the lead also in a system of government known as the Amherst System of a college senate by which, to a considerable extent, the students govern themselves. The college building's number 13, the entire property with endowments is valued at more than $2 million, and the annual income from all sources is about $65,000. There are three fellowships that of Rufus B. Kellogg for original research yielding $1,500 a year to the appointee, and a very nu- numerous prizes and scholarship. Also a charitable fund of $83,500 with other large funds for aid of those who have in in view the Christian ministry. Among the largest benefactors of the institution, each $50,000 or more, have been Dr. William J. Walker of Newport, Rhode Island, Samuel A. Hitchcock of Brimfield, Massachusetts, Samuel Williston of East Hampton, Massachusetts, Henry Winkley of Philadelphia, an unnamed donor, and the Fairweather Estate. The college is of the New England type, unisectarian, but under congressional auspices, and like most institutions of this type, its original motive was earnestly religious. That's that's pretty cool. And, uh, have you ever wanted to donate money anonymously? Uh, like that, to a college? Um, or some type of scholarship? Like, ooh, let me donate and make it anonymous. I thought that would be really fun um, to do. I, I don't know if I would do it now, but You know, I I think it would be fun, and I might, eventually, later, like in my 80s or something, like leave a legacy of anonymous. Um, It's fun to think about. Number four, amiable. Amiable, worthy or deserving of love or affection, pleasing. Amiability, noun, sweetness of disposition. Amiableness, noun, loveliness, agreeableness. Amiably, amiable. So, okay, so synonym of amiable is lovely, beloved, charming, pleasing, and delightful. I like that, delightful. And number five before break is amianth, or amianthus, which is a noun. And that means a variety of asbestos, or of serpentine, like delicate silky fibers. Amianthiform. form emianthoid having the form or likeness of Emianthus, And with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries are Amicable, Amis, Amici, Giovanni Battista, comma Edmondo De, Amid or Amidst. And before we get into our next set of five entries, or six through ten, I just wanted to mention that my one of my writing groups uh, went to Unicoi County to uh, for a poetry workshop. Sorry, my brain is getting a little uh, little confused there. We went to a poetry workshop, and we got to hear an amazing poet named William Rippy Moore, and uh, he goes by Rippy, as far as I know. That's what they kept calling him, Rippy. Uh, If you've never heard his poetry, they're very, very good. We got to go through a metaphor uh, challenge, which I write poetry. I don't always uh, do metaphors, and so I kind of forget about them. So it was a good little review of metaphors. We did some really cool exercises, one of which I completely didn't understand at all, but (laughs) we had a good laugh about it. That was really interesting. So if you've never heard his poetry... Um, I suggest you look him up. Now, I do have him in the description, um, and his, I didn't find a website for him. I bought one of his books. I haven't read his, uh, book of poems yet. I'm I'm planning on reading it. It just, uh, happened Thursday. So, last Thursday was when we went, and I've been super busy between now and then. Um, but I do have a website where I found uh, a little bit about him. Um, it's a poetry society, um, tnne.wordpress.com website. And that website link, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It's a pretty long website. That link is in the description below. But his name is William Rippy Moore or Rippy Moore. Excellent. So if you if you just look him up, even if you don't follow that website, if you just look up William Rippy Moore, you'll find uh, where a lot of his poetry is published. And uh, I don't know if it'll let you read it for free. Um, but uh Even if you've got to pay for it, it's very, very much worth your money. Uh, He's really good. Um, Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Number six is amicable. And we are in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 right now for number six and seven and ten. So number six is amicable. And that is friendly, peaceable. Disposal to friendly intercourse, amicably, in a friendly way, with goodwill, amicableness, the disposition to preserve friendship and goodwill, synonym of amicable, peaceable, friendly, harmonious, and kind. I love that. I love that. I love the word amicable, uh, friendly, uh, disposal to friendly intercourse. It reminds me when I went to Washington, D.C., and I may have already mentioned this. Uh, I've told this story a few times, but I went to Washington, D.C. I believe in, I don't remember, it was like 2011, 2012 or something. I'd never been before. Uh, so here in the South, we're taught manners. And if uh, a senior citizen or a silver sneaker person needs a seat, we're taught to stand up and give them our seat. That is what I did on a bus, and the poor woman ran. I mean, literally, I'd never seen someone her age, other than a runner, uh, she didn't look like a runner, (laughs) but I'd never seen anyone her age run so fast in my life um, when I offered her my seat. It was just hilarious. Uh, But that's just, it's kind of sad. It's funny. It's funny, but it's also kind of sad um, because... Apparently she wasn't used to people being friendly or having goodwill or being amicable. Um, but it, it, that always gives me a good chuckle, but in a kind of a kind of a, a sad, sad chuckle way. Anyway, I just wanted to share that story. Number seven, amus, noun, a cloak usually worn by pilgrims, an oblong piece of linen resembling an embroidered collar tied about the neck of a Roman Catholic priest. So if you've ever wanted to know what that's called, it's an emus. I've I've never known that. And number eight, uh, for numbers eight and nine, we switch over to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, and we have Amici, Giovanni Battista, or Giovanni Battista Amici. He was an Italian scientist, born Medina March 25th, 1786, died Florence, April 10th of 1863. He was educated at Bologna in 1815, became professor of mathematics in the University of Medina, but in 1825 left teaching to study optics and astronomy. That's cool. In 1831, he succeeded Jean-Louis Pons as astronomer of the Museum at Florence. Hereafter, 1859, he devoted himself to microscopy. Amici is noted for his studies of plant fertilization and pathology and for his work with reflecting telescopes, achromatic microscopes, prisms, and the camera lucida. That's pretty neat. And number nine is Amici's, or Amici's, comma, Edmondo De, or Edmondo De Amici, Italian descriptive writer born on, on Anglia of Genoese parentage. Okay, so I, I know I'm messing some of these up. My apologies. October twenty first, eighteen forty six. He died in Bordighera, March twelfth of nineteen o eight. Educated at Coni in Turin, he attended the Medina Military School. Entered service in eighteen sixty three as sub lieutenant. Acted against the Sicilian brigands. And served through the Austro-Prussian War of eighteen sixty six, he remained in the army till the occupation of Rome in eighteen seventy. But his literary vocation was plain. In eighteen sixty seven, he took charge of a Florentine paper, La Italia Militare. In eighteen sixty eight, his first volume, La Vita Militare, short stories of the phases of a soldier's life, had sweeping successes and marked him as the coming Italian li- literature. In 1871, he settled at Turin and devoted himself to authorship. His ne- next work was Riccardi del in 1870 to 1871. It looks like it was published in 1872. Dedicated to the youth of Italy, a fresh collection of stories followed, but a craving for travel turned him into the path which has given him his greatest fame. The foreign world at least knows him mainly by the brilliant glowing volumes describing the countries of Europe and other continents he visited. Their national characteristics and habits, and most of all, the springs of their life and thought. They are enthusiastic, sympathetic, optimistic, full of sensuous delight and beauty, rich in color and vivid in clearness of portrayal, but they exhibit, too, a marvelously keen analytic power, as well as acute photographic sensitiveness to impressions and marvelous literary skill in translating them into language. The greatest of these, perhaps, is Olanda, in 1874, a singularly fine analysis of the essence of Dutch life and the sources of Dutch art in that life. Others are La Spagna in 1872, Riccardi de Londra in 1874, Morocco 1876, Riccardi de Parigi, 1879, Constantinople 1878-1879. to He published also in these times Ricciotti, Literary, in 1881, Sympathetic Studies of Alphonse Dudet, Emily Zola, Dumas Fils, Paul Duralati, Bignot Coquiclin, and Emile Auger, Glee Amici, 1883, On Friendship in General, a Collection of Historical Novelettes, Sol Oceano, 1889, Later Educational and Social Problems Deeply Occupied His Mind. His Cora, 1886, translated in English as The Heart of a Schoolboy, a juvenile in which a pupil tells the events of a school year day by day sold nearly 200,000 copies in Italy. A novel for adults on similar lines is La Mostrina degli Opere in 1895 in Il Romanzo di un Maestro, 1890. He avows himself that socialism is the only available spring of a vital Italian literature. See also, Cure. Okay, and number 10, Amid or Amidst. And for that one, we go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Let me make sure I've got the right one. Okay. And, oh, (laughs) It's as short as the word. So we have a mid or a bits before break. And it simply means among in the middle. So there we go. So among or in the middle. And with that, let's go ahead and take a break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries, or entries 11 through 15, are amid, amidst, amidogen, Emil's journal in time. And Amiang, Yang. And that is not spelled the way it is pronounced. So again, if you um, are keeping up with the words and want to know how it's spelled, uh, just go to TheOakTreeJourneys.com and select Season 1, Episode 67. Uh, It's usually at the very, very bottom, and this is number, it'll be number 15 in this one. Okay, so number 11 is Amid or Amid. There are two different spellings of it. And it is a noun. It's a chemical compound formed from ammonia by the replacement of one or more of its hydrogen atoms by an acid radical. Amidin, noun, a substance resulting resulting from the action of hot water on starch. Amidogen, noun, a hypothetical radical of ammonia and the amides. Ammonidine, noun, and amid. (laughs) Amine, noun, a compound ammonia in which hydrogen is replaced by an alcohol or phenol radical. And number 12 is amids, which is a group of organic compounds derived under certain conditions from ammonia, which is NH3 or NHHH. By the exchange of one or more atoms of hydrogen are replaced by an acid radical and the amids are called primary, secondary, or tertiary, according as one, two, or all three of the atoms of hydrogen are replaced by the acid radical. The primary amides may be obtained in various ways, of which are here noted too. One, if ammonium, ammonium salt be heated, water is given off when the amid corresponding to the acid is left. And I'm not going to read um, all of these chemical compounds, but it's ammonium acetate, or acetamide, and is so... And it shows, and if you want to look it up, you can, uh, but these are very complex, um, and I wouldn't even begin to be able to tell you how to, how to read it. Number two, the acid chlorides and ammonia give amids, thus benzyl chloride yields benzamide and hydrochloric acid. The amids are for the most part capable of being obtained in a crystalline form and are feasible volatile body, bodies. For a description of the more complicated forms of amids, and for a history of their general properties, the reader is referred to the article Amids in Watt's Dictionary of Chemistry. If, in place of an acid radical, an alkyl or aryl group (alcohol or phenol radical) replaces one or more atoms of hydrogen in ammonia, a class of compounds termed amends is formed. For whose composition, see Organic Bases. The term "amid" is also applied to certain metallic compounds in which one third of the hydrogen of ammonia has been replaced by metal, as in the case of sodamide, which is NaNH2. And number 13 is imidogene, which is a substance procured by the action of the metal potassium on dry gaseous ammonia. The latter contains one atom of nitrogen to three atoms of hydrogen, or NH3, while imidogene contains one to two NH2. Amidogene forms a very important class of organic compounds called amides, and gives rise to a number of substances closely allied to the alkaloids, many of which indeed may be regarded as natural amides. And for number 14, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And I thought this was interesting. I read a little bit about it um, as I was preparing for today's podcast. And number 14 is Emile's Journal in Time. And uh, Henry Frederick Emile, though for more than 30 years, professor in the Academy of Geneva, is remembered almost solely for his journal in time, to which he confided thoughts and impressions, chiefly psychological, that he could not find the will to publish during his life. He bequeathed it a manuscript of 1,700 pages. Think about that for just a second. 1,700 pages to Gen- friends that they might publish from, from it whatever seemed, quote, to possess interest as thought or value as experience, end quote. A first volume appeared as Fragments Un Journal in Time in 1883, with a notable introduction by Edmund Shearer. A second and last volume followed in 1884. Both have been exceptionally well translated with a thoughtful introduction by Mrs. Humphrey Ward. The journal made an immediate and deep, though not wide, impression as being, in the words of Joseph E. Renan, the perfect mirror of a modern mind of the best type, matured by the best modern culture, and also a striking picture of the sufferings which beset the sterility of genius. The morbid introspection that numbed action in Emile, as in Shakespeare's Hamlet, seems to have been intensified by the conditions attending the recognition of his talent that he gained on his return to his native Geneva after six years of philosophical study, chiefly in Germany. A democratic revolution had displaced in the city the old governing aristocracy in which was comprised nearly all its culture. To this new government he owed his professorship, an appointment which involved an almost complete social isolation of which the psychic effect is constantly reflected in the journal. Beauty of expression, psychological insight, untiring intellectual interest, and above all, a power of revealing most poignantly an experience of spiritual uncertainty assured the journal a high place in the literature of confession. So, it sounds kind of like a 30 years of just basically journaling. Um, I don't know. I've been journaling for years and years. Not 30 years, but um, I don't think mine is would be as insightful as this. So if you think yours is, that's fantastic. Let me know. Uh, you can email me mandyoaks at protonmail.com if you want to share some of your journals entries, that's fine. Um or go to the and select contact if you want to share some. If you journal. Or you can just let me know if you journal. Now, no, most people don't don't seem to journal anymore. They seem to put everything on social media. Um, which I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong on that, but it just seems that way. Um, and I think if if I'm correct in that, I, I admit that I could be wrong on that, but if I am correct, I think that's a little sad because I journaling to me, um, gives me insight into what I'm thinking. I may not have a clear thought. I know my uh My new journal right now seems to have clear thoughts, but the one right before it when I was trying to figure some stuff out it's just all over the place It's like a whole labyrinth of just weird thoughts and feelings and i was I was here and there and had a sinus infection. I was just trying to get through um some stuff, so it really it's really just all over the place, and I wasn't getting much sleep so there were some weird, I went back and read some of the stuff and I was just like, really? <laughs> I actually put that in there. Oh, I think it does give good insight in, into what your thoughts and feelings are. And it can help you clarify some things. Um, like, uh, for instance, I didn't know what I needed, um, until I started journaling. Um, and I also, um, well, something I've been writing about, I, I'm not going to go into great detail, but something happened, um, something wonderful actually happened, um, and it sparked this dam of memories, and I'm not using the vulgar dam, um, but a dam of memories I had kept under wraps for almost two decades. I mean, it just flooded everything, and so journaling... Helped give me insight into what was going on because it was stuff I had never hadn't dealt with, and so maybe maybe you journal, maybe you don't journal. Um, if you do journal, or if you don't, let me know and let me know why or why not. And, and uh, do you prefer social media journaling, um, just putting your life out there for everyone to see, or do you do you enjoy the privacy of uh, just learning what your thoughts and feelings are? Because what you what you feel and what you're thinking may not be exactly what's going on. It may just be a doorway into what's really going on. And so do you really want that on social media? So that those are just a few of my thoughts. I think it'd be really interesting to read his journals. Um Emila's journal in time. I may look that up a little later. I'll have to star it actually uh, to to remember to look it up. But but if you've ever read his journals or someone else's journals too, that it's always an interesting thing. Anyway, let's move on. Let's move on to number 15, which is Amiyang. Amiens, which is not spelled anywhere near how it's pronounced. That's number 15. It is an ancient city in the plain of Picardy, capital of the Department of Somme, France. The seat of a bishop and of a court of justice has a citadel and fortifications. It possesses a college, an academy, a theological seminary, an industrial school, a school of medicine, a public library, a picture gallery, a botanical garden, and several literary and scientific institutions. Among its public buildings, the cathedral is a noble edifice built 1220. 1220. Wow. Esteemed a masterpiece of Gothic architecture. Peter the Hermit was born here. It has considerable manufacturers of velvet, silk, woolen, and cotton goods, ribbons, and carpets. The place owes its celebrity chiefly from the Peace of Amiang. had to go back and look at the pronunciation. Uh, a treaty signed in the city in 1802 on March 27th by Joseph Bonaparte, the Marquis of Cornwallis, Zara, and Schimelpunit, and intended to settle the disputed points between England, France, Spain, and Holland. By this treaty, England retained possession of Ceylon and Trinidad, and an open port at the Cape of Good Hope. France received back her colonies, the Republic of Seven Islands was recognized, Malta was restored to the Order of the Knights of St. John, Spain and Holland regained their colonies with the exception of Trinidad and Ceylon, the French were to quit Rome, Naples, and Elba, and Turkey was restored to its integrity. These terms were not received with satisfaction by the English, of course not, and war was declared against Bonaparte in 1803. In the franco prussian War of 1870, it was taken by the German general Montafel, an event which contributed to the fall of Paris. The population in 1881 was 73,630, In 1891, 83,654. And in 1901, 90,758. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but we did switch back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for number 15. And with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries are Emio, comma Joseph Amis, Emity Emityville Emleth or Hamleth. And uh, number sixteen, uh, we are in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 right now. So we have M-E-O, comma Joseph, and not spelled the way it's pronounced, or Joseph Emio. He lived from 1718 to 1794, born in Hulin, France. A celebrated Jesuit and oriental scholar who lived as a missionary in China from 1750 until his death. His knowledge of the Chinese and Tatar, is it Tatar, tater, I'm sorry. That's so southern, Tater. Tatar languages enabled him to collect many valuable notices of antiquities, history, language and arts in China. Many of his writings may be found in the Memoirs consonants la History, les sciences et les arts de Chignoy, 15 volumes, Paris, 1776 to 1791. His Dictionnaire Tatar manchal Francois was edited by Langley's in 1789. And my apologies for all of that. <laughs> um, number 17, Amiss. It means wrong, faulty, out of order, or in a faulty manner. And uh, number 18 uh, is emity noun. It means friendship or harmony. I love that, emity. Friendship or harmony. So I remember that when we get to number 19, which we're getting ready to hit. Before we go into number 19, though, I did want to just mention... Uh, next Sunday, uh, if, if anyone is in the area of East Tennessee, um, the Bluff City area of, of uh, East Tennessee, next Sunday, the 5th of June, we are having a meal at Mountain View Church of Christ. So you're welcome to, to come join us. Um, the meals are usually really, really good. Let's say usually, they're always really good. And the fellowship is wonderful. So yeah, so if you're ever in, in the uh, East Tennessee, if it's ever the first uh, Sunday of the month, you know, feel free to hit up Mountain View Church of Christ and uh, join join us for a, a meal and some fellowship. So again, that's the 5th of June, and that's uh, usually around noon. Uh, church services began at 11, Sunday school at 10 a.m., that's Eastern time, and then right after, around noon or a little after, is, uh, is the meal. So there you go. Alright, just wanted to mention that, and number 19 19 is Amityville, and that did, I've never seen the movie, uh, or movies, I didn't realize there were so many when I looked it up, but this is not the Amityville Horror, however, I did find out in looking it up that the Amityville Horror movie is actually based on some true crimes by a man named Ronald DeFeo Jr., 1974 so if you want to look up more of that you can i believe this is the same place because it says new york and he he um did it in long island i believe long island is in new york um don't quote me on that if i'm wrong feel free to let me know that that's perfectly fine so we are in the encyclopedia americana of 1956 for number 19 which is amityville and that is a village in New York. is located 32 miles east of New York City on Great South Bay on the line dividing Nassau and Suffolk, Suffolk Counties. It is on modern highways and is served by the Long Island Railroad. Okay, Emmettville is a residential community with a large commuting population and is also a summer resort well known for its sailboat races. It has a public library and its educational system includes high schools. Isn't that funny that they have to say that in the in 1956 that, yes, we do have high schools. Come, come, we have high school. Anyway, I just thought that was funny. Settled about 1750. It was incorporated in 1894 and is governed by a mayor and board of trustees. The population in 1950 was 6,164. And let's move on to number 20, which is Amleth or Hamleth. And we, we are switching to the, encycl- the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, for number 20. And it would say, he was a prince of Jutland, said to have lived B.C. 2nd century. According to Saxo Grammaticus, he was the son of Horvindil and Garutha. And after the murder of his father by his uncle Fingo, who murdered Garutha, he feigned himself a fool to save his own life. Saxo relates a number of little things regarding Emleth, which are a curious medley of sharp and lively observation and apparent madness. Susp- uh, we, we are told that on one occasion when he visited his mother, suspecting that he was watched, he commenced to crow like a cock and dance idiotically about the apartment until he discovered, hidden in a heap of straw, a spy in the person of one of Fingo's courtiers whom he immediately stabbed He then so terrified his mother by his reproaches that she promised to aid him in his intended revenge on his father's murderer, and according to the old chronicler, really did so. Scandinavian traditions confirm the existence of a prince of this name. A field is still pointed out in Jutland with a tomb bearing the name of Amleth. The vicinity of Elsinore is shown the spot where the father of Amleth was assassinated. It is the source of Shakespeare's tragedy of Hamlet. So I was, I was kind of wondering that, I was wondering if, if it had anything to do with Hamlet. And thus possesses a perennial interest for the civilized world. So wow! So this guy named Amleth or Hamlet, inspired Hamlet, so that's pretty wild, and he acted a fool. Now that's uh, also in the Bible, um, David acted uh, very foolish too. To save his life. And with that. Let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries are. Emin, Johan Conrad. Emin, comma, Jost. Eminati, Bartolomeo. Emin, comma, Daniel. Emerskuler, comma Johanna Vaughn, Or Van. And uh. We will begin in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And before I read entry number 21, I just wanted to say during break, I got uh, some pictures from one of my friends who got to go to an adult prom last night and she and her husband look so adorable. I don't know how long they've been married. I know they've been married for at least 19, 20 years. I, I, I don't know. That's not for me to keep up with. That's for them. But they... Looks so in love, and it's just so adorable. I love it. And I hope they had fun. Uh, It looks like they're, uh, from the pictures, they sent before pictures. I haven't gotten the after pictures yet. They sent before pictures, and it looks like they're getting ready to have a lot of fun. So, yay! So, anyone who went to the adult prom last night, I hope you had a blast. So, let's go ahead and move on to uh, entry number 21. Ammon, Johan Conrad, or Johan Conrad Ammon. And with this one, we are in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. I'm not sure if I mentioned that yet. Uh, Here we go. He was a Swiss physician, born Schaffhausen in 1669, died Wormund near Leiden, Netherlands around 1730. He was educated at the University of Basel and practiced medicine in Amsterdam, where he gained a great reputation. Uh, now, it doesn't really go into a lot of detail here, uh, but I th- think this this just sounds really interesting. So here's just a few uh, sentences of his life, and I wish they would tell us more. But uh, he was one of the earliest writers on the instruction of the deaf and dumb. He outlined his methods in Certus Loquins in 1692. 1692, think about that. These consisted principally in attracting the attention of his pupils to the motions of his lips and larynx where, while he spoke, and then inducing them to imitate his movements until they could repeat distinctly letters, syllables, and words. And that's it. That's all we get to, get to hear about him. I, I really wish they told more because he sounds very interesting. Um, but that's it. That's all we got. <laughs> so let's move on to number 22. Eamon comma Jost or Jost Emmon. and we are back in the new imperial encyclopedia and dictionary of 1909 uh, he lived from 1539 to 1591 he was a here we go swiss artist and engraver notable for productiveness for correct and spirited drawing and for accuracy in costumes Ooh, that's neat i like costumes many of his works copperplate and woodcut or in the berlin collection of engravings i wonder if it's still there because uh, this was written in 1909. Let's just, um, I'm going to go on and read from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. It looks like they have a little bit more about uh, Jost So Let's just go ahead. I wasn't planning on doing it, uh, on reading about him, but we didn't get to hear very much about him in the 1909. And I feel a little deprived about Johann Conrad Ammon. So let's see. Swiss painter and engraver, born Zurich, June 13th, 1539, died, I was just double checking here. Sometimes the dates are a little off. No, it looks like the dates are, the dates match. So he was born in Zurich, June 13th, 1539, died Nuremberg, Germany, May 17th, 1591. Little is known of his personal history, he handled etching and wood engraving with great skill and left a considerable number of pen drawings. I've got a friend who does uh, wood engravings, and she she has to do them um, uh, a certain way to print them. She she prints wood engravings. I know I've mentioned her before. Her name is Courtney Parkinson, and uh, she does have a website. I'll have to look that up again. I wasn't planning on on plugging her here. Uh, but I've plugged her before in the past, and, and so if I remember, I'll put her website link uh, in the description below. But it just, just remind me of it, of her work. Of major importance are his drawings for woodcuts, through which he exercised a wide influence. Eamon drew directly on the wood and sometimes cut the engravings himself. He made numerous woodcuts for illustrated editions of the Bible and 115 woodcuts for a book on the arts and trades in 1568. He also made a series of copper-plate engravings of the kings of France and a number of etchings, including portraits of Hans Sachs, Martin Luther, ooh, cool! and Admiral Gaspard de Coligny. In Basil, there is a collection of his designs for stained glass. And so I'm glad we read that because we did get a little bit more of his life. And let's go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary and read about... Emanotti, Bartolomeo, or Bartolomeo Eminati. He lived from 1511 to 1592. He was born in Florence. He was an architect and sculptor. He was at first a pupil of Baccio Bandinelli. afterwards of Sansovino at Venice. In 1550, he married Laura Batteferi of Urbino, celebrated for her poetical gifts. Pope Julius III employed him in the decoration of the capital, and Cosmo de', de Medici appointed him his architect. He completed the Pitti Palace, begun by Bruno Lecce. Okay, and number 24, let's move on to Ammon, Daniel, or Daniel Ammon. Uh, he was a rear admiral, admiral born Ohio in 1820, on May 15th, he died in 1808, or excuse me, I'm sorry. He couldn't be born in 1820, then die in 1808, unless we're talking BC. Sorry about that. He died in 1898, July 11th. He entered the Naval Service as midshipman in 1836 on July 7th, and was in the Wilkes Exploring Expedition in the Mediterranean and the East India squadrons. He served with the Paraguay Expedition from 1853 to 1854, and on the U.S. steam frigate Miramac from 1859 to 1860. In 1860, he was made executive officer of the North Atlantic Squadron, and in 1861, was in command of the Seneca in the attack on Port Royal. Appointed commander in 1863, he was present March 3rd in the attack on Fort McAllister. In 1864, he was ordered to California on board a passenger steamer, in charge of 220 seamen, and was successful in suppressing a mutiny which broke out among them. He was engaged in the Fort Fisher expedition from 1864 to 1865, was commissioned captain in 1866 on July 26th, and he served on special duty till 1878 when he was retired as Rear Admiral. Wow, (laughs) that felt like a mouthful. If it sounded like a mouthful, I'm sorry, it felt like a mouthful. And speaking of a mouthful I've been doing intermittent fasting and I've cut out sugars now I've I started uh, eating a little bit of sugar every now and then um, whenever I went to the convention the birthright convention uh, a few weeks ago I did have some ice cream which I tried to avoid ice cream altogether but this was a I needed a sh- kind of a sugar rush to help drive. And, and plus, it was just really, really tempting. It's why I've got to stay away from ice cream. But that was my fir- first sugar I had in a very long time. And it did it did its job. It kept me awake. And then, you know, I've, I've had about once or twice a week um, a little bit of sugar like a, uh, I had a gluten-free key lime pie at Cootie Brown's. Amazing. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Amazing pie. Love it. But, uh, today I was, I was craving a little bit of sugar and so I, I grabbed a vegan marshmallow. I hadn't opened them in a, I had I bought them months ago for the kids whenever they came over for, for hot cocoa and stuff. And they just, I just keep forgetting about them. In fact, uh, where I've been heating tea and coffee and they've been nearby, it kind of melted together. So I was like, Oh, I'll eat one. Oh man. I did not understand uh, whenever Stephen King and other authors described biting sugar, just just the bite to it. I never understood that. But that marshmallow, pure sugar, it made my teeth hurt. And now I understand. Um, my One of my favorite books by Stephen King is Misery. And it talks about how she... Uh, Annie Wilkes is constantly eating the sugary things, and how poor Paul Sheldon is trying to eat it, and is just like there's just too much sugar, but he's too afraid not to eat it because she's just a scary, scary woman. If you've never watched Misery or read the book Misery, oh, you're missing out. Um, I hate the I hate the language in it, but but it's a good book. Um, but it always talked about the biting just how it made his teeth hurt and I never ever understood that. Um, and that's an indicator that I've had too much sugar my entire life if I can't understand what he's talking about, the biting sugar. Um, I understand it now. Completely and utterly understand it now. The gluten-free key lime pie doesn't have that much sugar in it. It's it's got a really good sour or a, a really good, uh, you know, you know how key, you know how uh, lime is. It's got that really good combination of the sugar and the lime. But this vegan marshmallow that I used to be able to eat half of a bag. I mean, uh, really, really, I, I, I would be able to just put it away. I couldn't even eat one. And that that's really good. I'm proud of that. Uh, I'm not planning on getting back into that habit of eating more than one, but wow. So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you. I uh, finally understand uh, what it means when you say biting sugar, teeth hurts, and all of that. So, finally understand it. Okay, let's get back to to our uh, entries. So, entry number 25 is from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, and it's Amherst Cooler, comma, Johanna Vaughn or Van. So, Johanna Van Amher's Cooler. Now, let me make sure I've got the right... Here we go. Uh... He was a Dutch novelist, playwright, and short story writer. Born Delft on August 13th, 1884. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a woman. Van and Vaughn. Sorry, I I should have known that. So, Johanna Van Amerskuhler is a woman. So, her works of fiction include The House of Joy in 1922, The Rebel Generation in 1925, which has been translated into several languages. Tantalus in 1930, in which she gives her impressions of a visit to the United States. No Surrender in 1931, the heroine of which takes part in the suffragette movement in England, and the House of tavlink in 1939. So this indicates that she is still alive in the 1956, whenever the 1956 Encyclopedia Americana came out. Um, that's wild. That's pretty cool. If she was born in 1884 and she was still alive when this, when this was at least gathered together. So pretty cool. All right. And that was Johanna Van Amers Cooler. So if you've read any of her work, uh, let me know. Uh, you can email me at mandyokes at protonmail.com or go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact and, and just let me know. If you've read any of her work and if you have, did you enjoy it and would you recommend it? And with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our last set of five entries are a meter or meter, ammianus marcellinus, ammon or Ammon, or amon, emon, comma Christoph Frederick. MN comma auto. And number 26 is a meter or ampere meter. And that's simply an instrument for measuring the strength or quantity of current flow. See electrical measuring instruments. And number 27. And we are in the encyclopedia. I'm sorry. We are in the new Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 right now. Uh, for the uh, next four 26 through29 and then for the last one we'll go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And for Emionus Marcellinus, uh, he was a Roman historian of the 4th century, present in several cam- campaigns in Gaul, Germany, and in the East, and afterwards lived at Rome, engaged in literature. Though at Greek by birth, he wrote in Latin a history of the Roman Empire from A.D. 91 to 378 in 31 books, of which 13 containing the years 91 to 352 are lost. So in 1909, at least, they were completely lost. I don't know if they've been found yet. Uh, sometimes we do find books eventually. <laughs> uh, good explorers and archaeologists... Uh, This work, which commenced with the accession of Nerva, may be regarded as a continuation of Tacitus, and though the portions remaining have many faults of style, they are valuable on account of the author's love of truth. You have to, you have to respect that. A lot of people now don't respect or understand that truth is extraordinarily important. It's not about necessarily feelings. Feelings are are good. Feelings and emotions are good, but truth. Now there's a saying, the truth will stand when the world's on fire. Um, so truth is, is very valuable, and I love this. So they are valuable on account of the author's love of truth, his careful descriptions of countries and events from personal observation, and especially his remarks on Germany. His work has passed through several editions, of which the best are the Leiden edition in 1693 by Gronovius and the two Leipzig editions, 1773 and 1808. The latest edition is Garth Helson's 1875 in two volumes. Obviously, they don't think anything of it because they would say because this is extraordinarily biased. And that's another thing about truth. Uh, There is no your truth and my truth. No, no, truth is not uh, is not biased. Truth is truth. Um, anyway, let's let's move on to uh, enough enough lecture, right? Enough lecture. Let's move on to number twenty eight, which is amen or amen or no amen or amen, uh, which uh, we did study in a um, in a bonus whenever we were talking about amen. Um, but let's let's go ahead and read this. He was uh, an Egyptian deity styled Amon on hieroglyphic monuments. Compared by the Greeks with their supreme deity Zeus, the sacred name of Thebes, Amon's city, or no Amon, is the Old Testament's, uh, I think, Nahum, yeah, Nahum, chapter 3, verse 8, was therefore translated into Greek by Theospolis. In the temples of this town, his peculiar residence... Amon is represented as sitting on a throne, holding the symbols of life and power, and wearing a crown with a peculiar ornament of two feathers and a band falling behind and hanging down to his feet. He was especially the god of Thebes, though his temples are found in other places as at Meroe and over the whole of Nubia and Libya. The name Amon or Amon signifies the hidden, unrevealed deity, and in Egyptian mythology he held the highest place, His undefined character may serve to explain how other deities were identified with Amon. After the 18th dynasty, we find in hieroglyphics the name Amon Ra, frequently inscribed, indicating a blending of Amon with the sun god Ra. Similarly, the representation of Amon with a ram's head shows the blending of him with Knef. The worship of Amon spread at an early period to Greece, afterwards to Rome, where he was identified with Zeus and Jupiter. Temples for his worship were erected in Thebes, Sparta, Megalopolis, and other places. And number 29, we have Amon, Christoph Frederick, or Christoph Frederick Amon. He lived from 1766, uh, born January 16th, uh, died 1850, I was about to say 1851, I'm sorry, 1850, May 21st. Uh, He was a German theologian, chiefly known by his work on the development of Christianity as a universal religion, in four volumes, uh, published from 1833 to 1840, in which he argues in favor of such liberal development of doctrine as may keep theology in harmony with the progress of science. He was a leader of the rationalist school, he was a man of extensive learning, united with great industry and earnestness, and was generally respected in Saxony, where he resided. Frederick Augustus Amen, from 1799 to 1861, second son of the above, uh, known in Germany as the writer of several works on practical medicine and surgery. Um, I know that's a little weird there. They just kind of added him in there. It looks like I'm not really sure what's going on there. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to our last entry of the week. Uh, which is Eamon comma Otto, or Otto Eamon. And as promised, we are in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Just make sure I've got the right one. Okay, here he is. So Otto Eamon, he was a German anthropologist and editor. He was born Karl Schrew, December 7th in 1842, died January 1916. He was educated as a civil engineer. He was engaged in that profession from 1863 to 1868. From 1868 to about 1883, he was a publisher and editor. In 1883, he engaged in literary work and made several investigations in anthropology and sociology. He was the discoverer of Amon's law that the Teutonic race has everywhere manifested a tendency toward city life. He demonstrated this law by a series of measurements of physical characteristics among army conscripts. His investigations showed radical differences in the form of the head in city and country and even between the upper and lower classes in the larger cities. Among his published works are the uh, Naturliche Auslese beim Menschen, which was published in 1893 by Gina, Anthropologici unter Versumption der in Baden in 1890, and I am trying to study German, but please forgive me. I am still having trouble pronouncing words, obviously, Um, even English words, so uh, just uh, stick with me. Der Ember Dickensprilum in Naturwissenschaftlich von Schrift in Berlin, 1896, zur Anthropologie der Badner in 1899, and die (laughs) <laughs> I guess stuckferdingen und er naturally can in 1900 and my deepest deepest apologies um uh, especially to uh Duolingo and the other places where I've been trying to learn German uh and to anyone from Germany as as mentioned we have uh people from Germany listening so my apologies to you and if you want to give me lessons I will freely, freely accept them, um, word being free there, but no, ser- seriously though, if you, if you, uh, want to just, like, give me some advice about Deutsch or German, uh, feel free to do so, I am open to suggestions, I am not prideful at all, I know my limitations, I know I just butchered every single German word in that, um, so yeah, just uh, email me mandyoaks.protonmail.com or go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select contact and just berate me or give me advice. Either one, I'm good with, have no pride at all. Uh, so before we go, because uh, that was the 30th entry, so I want to thank you for listening. Um, I just appreciate all of you so, so much uh, for for listening and wanting to learn and know more about uh, words um, from the encyclopedia, and don't forget June nineteenth is Father's Day here in America. So June nineteenth. So if your father or father figure is still living, or grandfather, or whoever, just tell him Happy Father's Day. you know, show him some appreciation. I know my dad. Uh, before he died, he worked very very hard. Uh, I I was just remembering him. Uh, Actually just a few hours ago he uh, he worked as a um, truck driver out of necessity he had degrees in accounting he wasn't he, you know he was highly intelligent but he he worked super hard. the only job he could get was truck driving at the time and he ended up really enjoying it um, but he he did die on the road but uh, yeah that was that was one of the, the things that that he did. I know we. Anyway, I'm I'm going to get into babble on and on and on, so I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. My my apologies on that. Um, let's go ahead and end this because I'll I will probably break down and cry just remembering some of the things that he did. But uh, let's don't forget the monthly quote by George Santayana: A man may not always eat and drink what is good for him, but it is better for him and less ignominious to die of the gout freely than have a censor officially appointed over his diet who, after all, could not render him immortal. And today is the last day for that quote, and we will have a new monthly quote next week in June. And uh, don't forget to uh, look up William Rippy Moore uh, if you're looking for a poet. Uh, and I do have uh, Courtney's website in the description below. I did find that on, on break. And also, I know there's a month right now in between, but... If you want to participate in Camp NaNoWriMo in July, there is a link uh, naNoWriMo.org. You can sign up. It is free. Uh, So if you find yourself in a site that's asking for money, that is the wrong site. It is free. Now they will ask for donations but they will not make you pay anything. The donations are just strictly if if you can or if you want to. Um, I can't always donate and I haven't always donated. And In fact, I'm I've stopped participating, um, at least in the camps. But yes, uh, so also don't forget to go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. If you missed any words, just select Encyclopedia Challenge. And you can see the list of words. Uh, today's words were Season 1, Episode 67. So that's Episode 67. It's going to be all the way down to the bottom. Um, I haven't posted it as of this recording, but I'm getting ready to. And um looking to see if there's anything else. Oh, my Teespring store. I don't always remember my Teespring store. Um, I do have my link to the Teespring store there. Uh, I do not have a code for you right now uh, for a percentage off. Uh, but if you want to get your dad's anything for Father's Day, the Teespring store is available 24 hours a day. And with that, I hope everyone has a blessed week, and I bid you adieu.